0: When many of us think about artificial intelligence in the workplace, we think of robots taking jobs away from humans. That usually has to do with automation, essentially outsourcing repetitive tasks to machines. While I'm pretty sure bots aren't coming to replace our jobs right now, that's not what I want to focus on in this episode. When it comes to hiring, many workplaces are using artificial intelligence for what it does best, detecting patterns in big piles of data and sorting things. Humans are good at sorting too, well, some of us, but AI is better and it makes sense to use it to help sort data in areas where it can speed up traditionally analog, time-consuming tasks, such as screening candidates for a job, especially when staring down hundreds of applications. But introducing machines into something like hiring means that we're asking AI to make decisions about who's best suited for the job. That's where things get tricky. We'd like to think that machines are neutral and they can make unbiased decisions, but is that really possible? Today, I want to explore artificial intelligence in the modern workplace, particularly in the areas of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and the hiring process. It's increasingly a priority for corporations to build teams with people that come from different backgrounds and lived experiences and create a professional environment where they can collaborate and work successfully together. It's good for both the company and the employee when people feel like they're supported and included. So how can AI help build diverse and inclusive workforces? Sinead Bavel is a futurist whose expertise spans from the future of work to advanced technologies to sustainability and inclusivity in fashion. I reached her in New York City, where she's building Way, a platform for millennials and Gen Z to learn about the intersection of business, technology, and the future. I started out by asking her the question I was most curious about. Can an AI machine be neutral?
1: Hypothetically... It's possible. Okay. Um, I think there is a a world in which machines could be neutral. Is that Um, our world? (laughs) Um, The path we're on right now, I would say no. Uh, We are not on the neutral path, but I do think that... there is a path where that reality could exist.
0: Oh, that is so interesting. Okay, so let's dive right into this. (laughs) So before we talk about that path that could get us to a world where computers are neutral, let's talk about where we are right now. So in our current world in 2020, um, are computers neutral and particularly artificial intelligence?
1: I would say no. Artificial intelligence is only going to be as good as the data that it's fed. And it learns off of the data from society. So you can't expect a model that's trained on the data from society to be better than society. And right now we haven't implemented um, the right checks and balances to ensure that we're not coding in historical power imbalances uh, to our decision-making. So I would say that the systems we have in place today, um, to my knowledge, are definitely not neutral. That's
0: such an interesting point. So biases could come into AI both from the data set that they're being trained on and also from the code itself. So that makes me think, what about the biases of the people who are making the machines? How does that play into all of this?
1: Yep. Um, So yes, there is a lot of focus on the data that goes into an algorithm, which is huge. Um, But what about the person that's designing that algorithm or the questions or the variables that we use. So uh, a coder or technologist's opinion of maybe we use income or neighborhood, or we don't include race, all of those different preferences by the coder or the person that's in those rooms uh, will impact whether that machine has bias or not. So it's not just about the data. It's about the people in the room who know when to look for biases in the first place.
0: Is there any way to detect bias in an AI system? Any way to, say, mitigate or counteract it?
1: Yeah, I think um, one solution, which is quite easy is to just test the algorithm before you implement it. Um, And that's something that isn't done enough and it seems like it's so simple, Um, but oftentimes you'll source uh, some form of machine intelligence from a company and they'll give you the assurance that this we've checked for all areas of bias, it's not a biased machine. Have you checked that now with your data? Um, So that's one area where you can can mitigate a potential disaster. Um, And the second is ensuring that the people that are in your, your rooms, your coding rooms, your application rooms are representative of the, the customers, the people that will be using this algorithm. And that's something where government policy can also step in. You don't want to have policy that hinders the innovation, but you can protect people in ensuring that there certain voices in the rooms, which we, we don't have at all right now.
0: Absolutely. Um, and when we were talking about potentially moving towards a future or, um, you know, a beautiful world where we have machines that are neutral and maybe don't have some of the bias problems that we have with our AI right now, are, are those the kind of things that you're you're thinking about when you look at moving towards a future where we don't have so much algorithmic bias?
1: Uh, absolutely. That is I think, the the end goal. Because when you look at Any place where there's a human decision, that presents an opportunity for bias. So theoretically, if you had a system that's been coded very carefully, you can eliminate that human bias. How we get there is very complicated, and it's certainly uphill. But theoretically speaking, um, using the right data, uh, the right checks and balances, that could be a possibility. And you can also build machines that their sole purpose is spotting bias. Um, and we don't re- really talk about that um, as much. It's more so the, the machines that are already doing harm in the world.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Um, the idea of potentially using a machine to spot bias in another machine. Um, mm-hmm. could you, do you have any examples or could you tell me about how that works?
1: hmm They're actually quite readily available. Uh, there's one that's for hiring um, that can help you after you've selected candidates, uncover through your algorithm, maybe you are only catering to these certain people, or the language that you use in your job description actually you know, spoke more to males or than it is female. Um, so there are algorithms that can do that. Uh, we just need to invest in them and make them just as important as the ones that we just have making decisions.
0: Yeah. So, so let's talk about hiring. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, traditionally the hiring process, like I got to say, I have a company and I've done a lot of hiring and it is tedious. It, it is really, really <laughs> manual, um, you know, mm-hmm. drafting the job description, deciding where you're going to post it, uh, you know, it, Accepting candidates, screening candidates, moving to the interview stage. Like it is so tedious, but it's also so deeply, deeply human. Um, Where do we see an opportunity potentially for AI in that hiring process?
1: I think the entire process of hiring could definitely benefit from AI. And it already is um, from you know, marketing the job description to selecting candidates, which is such a tedious process, um, to then interviewing candidates. We have the machine capability or the algorithmic capability to, to take over all of that um, and even recommend the final candidate that would be best suited for your company. That doesn't mean that it, it's ethically going to be correct or unbiased the entire process. But we definitely have uh, the potential to to somewhat automate or augment that process to assist recruiters.
0: So what about situations where we're not just, you know, like... Handing the keys over to the machine and saying, you know, go wild. Like, are are there situations where you can potentially have humans working alongside AI so that maybe it's not fully making all the decisions itself, but it may be um, kind of helping to inform the human decisions?
1: Mm -hmm. I think anything that could be life altering for somebody, whether that's getting a job, alone, getting parole, there should be humans. As part of all at all process points in these systems at this point in time machines are not ready to just be making decisions on their own uh, and so whether that's having a human at every check and balance point or you're know, just going over the decisions that AI has made and making sure that they were fair um, and representative but at this point in time I wouldn't recommend any company or organization or government process just be re- you know, replace the human with the machine I don't think that that would be good
0: news for anybody. Sinead talked about how important it is to have people from different backgrounds and different life experiences be the ones who design and build technology. Turns out, when you form diverse teams, they don't just make better tech, they make for a better business. We'll find out why after this word from Microsoft. There's a strong moral and ethical argument for building a diverse workforce that represents the mosaic of society. But there's also a business case to be made here.
2: Diverse organizations outperform their homogenous peers by 35%.
0: That's Lindsay Ray McIntyre, chief diversity officer at Microsoft. I was curious to hear her thoughts on how to successfully integrate diversity, inclusion and belonging into every level of a company. But first, I wanted to learn more about that business argument. Why is it that diverse teams outperform homogenous teams by such a substantial index? I think
2: diverse teams really have the opportunity to disrupt norms, to question things that maybe we held true in the context of how we were raised or how we were taught or the schools that we went to. And when you think about the dynamic nature of how technology is being built today and how teams are collaborating today on a global basis, you know, Microsoft does business in or with 190 countries. And so just such an incredible global landscape. And, you know, the the diverse teams really have an opportunity to engage in a a more full, more comprehensive, more nuanced conversation around the technology and around the solution sets that actually reflect society.
0: So we know that hiring people who represent a diverse range of the human experience and putting them together on teams is so, so important. But that's also just the first step. Once you assemble those diverse teams, how do you create the conditions to make sure that they feel like a member of the team and they feel like they belong and like their voices are being heard?
2: Yeah, I think that there are a number of ways that we can do it. Um, you know, at Microsoft, we're lucky that diversity and inclusion is a piece of every employee's performance conversation. And so, you know, we have accountability, obviously, from the CEO and his direct reports all the way through the organization. And so diversity and inclusion is is a core piece of our our strategic framework as a company. When we teach and talk about the totality of what is important to Microsoft, we talk about diversity and inclusion the very same way as we talk about our customer solutions. In the same sentence as we're talking about our mission and um, the other business priorities that, that are important. And so diversity and inclusion isn't this afterthought that we sort of think about independent of everything else, right? That that it has to be connected to the overall experience that employees are having. And so, you know, when we think about our employee resource groups and the incredible support structures that show up for our employees in engaging with communities that they feel attached to or embarking on uh, shared learning and shared understanding around concepts that may be of interest to all of us. You know, we recently partnered with uh, the NYU Center of Diversity, Belonging and Inclusion, as well as the Neuroleadership Institute to talk about, you know, global phenomena um, of covering and allyship in particular. And so it's those ongoing conversations that allow us to get curious, but also really to be aware about What we know and what we don't know as peers, as managers, as colleagues, as leaders, and then really being invested in the empathetic journey necessary to move forward. And so I think there was a time, particularly in tech, but in other industries where you know, empathy maybe wasn't at the forefront and it's just become so critical to the diversity and inclusion conversation, but also to the employee experience more broadly when we think about inclusion.
0: So can artificial intelligence aid in any of those operations and and initiatives? Like, is there anywhere that AI can kind of be embedded and actually help?
2: Yeah, I would say that, I'm hugely optimistic about uh, the opportunity for artificial intelligence to augment humanity, right? That that it's not a substitute. But when we think about diversity and inclusion, AI can absolutely help us, you know, continue to screen in candidates at scale when we have so many individuals applying to uh, job applications and um, you know, thousands and thousands of people, and we're looking for new and different perspectives and skill sets. I, I think AI can be hugely helpful there. When we think about nudges, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Microsoft's per, uh, AI personality is Cortana. And, you know, when I open my inbox every morning, Cortana sends me a couple of messages around things that I committed to do that I need to follow up on, but also gives me a little bit of information around. know, remember to walk today, remember to take care of your wellness, remember to register for your benefits. And so, you know, we think that AI can continue to be particularly helpful in the habit formation change around inclusion. So if I can provide Cortana with some knowledge that I, I, Lindsay Ray, am really working on a couple of really specific habits and skills as I engage in meetings or as I work on my own inclusion equation as a leader. Super helpful to have somebody other than my manager, other than my conscience reminding me what I want to be accountable for in improving my own, uh, DNI journey. And so I think those are a couple of examples, but I, I think that if we think about artificial intelligence as an augmentation, not a substitute, we start to get a little less nervous about how AI is going to show up in the context of our everyday life. Can an
0: AI be unbiased? Or are AIs just always going to be biased because humans are always going to be biased and they're the ones that are making it?
2: I think this is a huge question that we probably don't yet know the answer to. We know that the machine learning is only as good as the data sets that we give it. And so we have to continue to be relentless in the pursuit of diverse data sets across the totality of humanity, to have an even greater chance of reducing bias. We also have to solve for representation in the engineers and the machine learning and data scientists that are building the AI so that we are proactively accounting for diverse perspectives as we teach the machines and the AI opportunities. I was having a conversation with an AI specialist not long ago and Now I said, I don't know whether you know it or not, but you're actually in the diversity and inclusion business too, because you have to be able to accommodate for diversity and inclusion in how you understand and build your team so that you have the best possible chance of having the most inclusive conversation even before you start to build or think about training the machines. And oh, by the way, it's not only about the tech and the algorithms, those are super important, but embarking on intentional cultural conversations so that we start to bring in some of the nuance and the culture into the tech as well. Because both of those expectations are going to show up by the time the end user experiences it. Uh, in their home, in their office, in their car, in their wherever it shows up, it is going to be an expectation that the AI is inclusive, that it does understand cultural nuance. And so it has to be, you know, that we are intentionally, you know, relentless in the pursuit of diverse data sets, but also relentless in the pursuit of diverse engineering and scientific talent to build AI now and in the future. So what are
0: some some tools, what are are some ways that we can potentially uh, use AI to help make hiring not only more efficient, but have better outcomes? Because for so many organizations, hiring is very expensive. It's very time consuming. uh, And then after you spend so much time, you know, recruiting and interviewing and trying to get someone into place, they might not have really been a great fit how do you how do you use AI to to make it better
2: yeah I think that there are a bunch of organizations that are are sort of um, experimenting on on how best to do this and I would say that there's um, some interesting AI solutions that that are preparing people for interviews in thoughtful and scalable ways that are uh, potentially new and different that um, are helpful there are um Folks thinking about how we uh, use AI to find unique and different skill sets, of course, that requires tremendous diversity in the data sets. Um, You know, there are situations where folks have given the machines, you know, historical hiring data only to figure out that that wasn't representative of the diverse future that they were imagining for themselves and the AI potentially was not down selecting the diverse candidates. And so I happen to be one of these people that that believe that um, the recruiting experience is a deeply personal experience, right? That you ultimately want to connect to the soul of an organization, a uh, uh, career conversation and understanding what's possible for you. And so there's no scenario where AI replaces any of that. But I think in a place where we could help people get better prepared, understand opportunities. I love the idea that AI can start to send individual employees opportunities on like, hey, you have this on your potential career roadmap. Have you thought about an opportunity here? Or, you know, you go on to LinkedIn and you see a couple of potential Uh, searches or jobs or individuals that you might want to network with. And we know that networking is a huge piece of being able to recruit or connect to an organization that you maybe didn't have awareness of. And so I think those are early examples of where, you know, we can um, use AI to do a better job of preparing us, connecting us, um, making us more aware of what's possible. But I continue to be a little bit old school in the fact that I think that (laughs) I personally don't imagine a, a time when we will let the, the computers select the hu- you know select the individuals for an organization in the absence of a human, because I think that there's such a critical piece of choosing an organization and choosing what matters for you personally and for your career that is completely dependent on human interaction.
0: When I listen to Sinead and Lindsay Ray talk about using artificial intelligence to assist, but not replace humans in the hiring process i remembered a toronto tech event that i went to a few years ago there were a few speakers including caitlin mcgregor an entrepreneur who was building a tech solution to assist with hiring i was intrigued then and even more intrigued now so i gave caitlin a call to learn more about her company called plum what it is and how it works
3: so plum is a software as a service platform And it quantifies human potential. So we look at people's innate talents, like their ability to innovate, communicate, work well on teams. And we're able to quantify that because we're taking best practices from industrial organizational psychology, and we're automating it with software. And we are quantifying people's innate talents through having them take an actual assessment, an online assessment and when they're done, it spits out this really easy to understand, highly accurate representation of what drives them and really gives them a sense of self-worth and what drains them. If they're in a role that asks them to do this day in and day out, it's not that they can't. It's just that eventually we can predict that they'll end up in burnout and, and they won't be coming home loving their job.
0: So is Plum using artificial intelligence?
3: So this is, this is an, an area that's a little gray because there's a, a spectrum of artificial intelligence. You know, we are speeding up what a human wouldn't be able to do on their own. So we're using computers and we're using technology to automate and speed up what uh, effectively, you know, the, the algorithms and, and the calculations and, and the matching that we do. It's based on industrial organizational psychology. It's not based on machine learning and just uh, repeating patterns and and allowing self-learning, which would be kind of pure AI. But it is loosely gray zone AI in that we are using the computer to automate and scale what we're doing.
0: So some companies have tried letting artificial intelligence make hiring decisions, and it didn't go so well. Why do you think that is?
3: Because you have to train the data. That's the thing with AI. It has to be trained. So whatever you're using to train it, all of the biases or flaws in that system that was in place originally that is training the AI, those come through. And so, you know, when we see examples of really smart, successful, you know, highly resourced companies not being able to fix the AI to remove some of those biases, It really breeds distrust. When I think about AI, I start with, what data trained this? Was the process there, already in place, perfect? And we're just using AI to speed it up and and keep moving forward with the perfection, awesome. But when I'm looking at a system like hiring and it's trained off of a broken system to begin with, then I'm I'm gonna be skeptical. So I, I always go back to, is this a process we already had perfect before we handed it over to AI?
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I want to talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion and diversity, inclusion and belonging and hiring. And you say that that Plum can actually help employers reach their diversity and inclusion goals. How so?
3: Yeah, so, you know, we use patterns in our lives and a lot of the times it's subconscious. We don't necessarily know that we're, you know, referring to those patterns, but we use patterns to try to de-risk our decisions. None of us as humans want to make the wrong decision. None of us wants to take a risk to find out that it blew up in our face and now we're responsible for making the wrong choice. So we tend to rely on things that seem safe, seem familiar, seem like sure things. If if we went to a summer camp and everybody in that summer camp now are successful, people, then we're just going to assume, well, if you went to that summer camp, then you're going to be successful. So if I'm hiring you from that summer camp, then, then I, I feel like I'm improving my odds, right? We hold on to these fake senses of security. And, and so the things that are very familiar are easy for us to say yes to. And the things that are foreign and not familiar, we have this almost concern that they're risky. There's this whole narrative that's happening in people's heads as to trying to sort that information as more risky, less risky. And we're trying to de-risk the decision for ourselves because we don't want to screw up. And so what happens with Plum is that we interrupt that bias. We're a bias interrupter. We take away the need to rely on that information because frankly, every single piece of research has shown that where you've gone to school is not a predictor of long-term success. You know, your past experience, if you were, you know, a salesperson selling phone books at company A, you know, sure, if you're going to company B, that may be relevant if you're selling phone books again. But if you are selling cybersecurity at company B, frankly, you selling phone books going to be less and less relevant, you know, but if you were a developer and now you want to become a salesperson, Maybe you'll actually do better because it has nothing to do with that past experience. It has to do with the qualities that are needed. And one company to the next, even with sales, you know, if you're solution selling or challenger selling, it's different strengths in our personality that make us really strong at that and cognitive ability and social intelligence and things that we're measuring at Plump.
0: So... If we're thinking about the traditional hiring process, what are some of those, those moments, those pitfalls where things are, are more susceptible to bias? We're talking about things like, you know, the applicant's name, but what others?
3: Yeah, if somebody has a gap in their resume, you immediately go, Why? And there's a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe they were taking care of a dying parent, and that was the last year or two years with their parent and they they wanted to prioritize that time. Maybe they took time off to have a kid, and as by having a kid, they are actually going to perform even better at work because now they know how to multitask even more. you know there's there's lots of benefits that come in maturity that sometimes come with that. so it could help them be even better, but they took but there's a gap in their resume. It just immediately goes the employer goes, well, why? And they try to make sense of it and they tell themselves different stories and, and pass judgment on that. So that's the thing. You know, there's lots of studies that say that Michaels will get more interviews than Michelle's and Michelle's will get more interviews than Mohammed's. Like the name, uh, where you've gone to school, if it's an overseas school name, there's positive things, not necessarily positive, but, but bias in a positive way. Again, back to that summer camp. If you went to the same summer camp as somebody else when, you know, and, and that's, you, know, you worked there as a summer job as a camp counselor and, and you see somebody else does, then you immediately feel this likeness to them. And we tend to like people that are like us if we relate to something in someone then we're like oh we can be friends people talk about the beer test or the going for dinner test i'm just going to do this final interview you know as the ceo with everyone that comes through and i'm going to judge whether or not i would want to go and have beer with them or have dinner with them and if i wouldn't then i don't want to bring them into my company and people think that they're doing a good thing with that that they're doing this culture test but it's actually bringing in an enormous amount Of bias into the process even that that final screen and so you know a lot of it is not it's not meant to screen people out it's again people just trying to de-risk the you know making a wrong hire is one of the most expensive things that you will do the problem is is it doesn't stop with hiring it goes into the workforce when it comes to promotions when it comes to succession planning when it comes to really I think most Large organizations realize at the heart that they're not getting the most out of the investment they've made. They're not getting the absolute most out of the employees that they've hired. So we're surfacing it to the humans that, hey, Laura over here would actually be amazing over there. And this person that you weren't going to look at for the job actually would be exceptional for A, B, and C. And you know, this is your future leader for this department that you're spinning up, even though they may be a little too early in their career yet, They should be on your radar. It's allowing humans to surface things they may not have seen and then giving them the opportunity and the information that now that they've seen it, what are they going to do with it?
0: Back in episode one, we talked about how the majority of Canadians don't understand and don't trust AI. I've been thinking a lot about that and why it might be. I think some of it comes from a fear of yielding power to machines. Because, as the guests in this episode have said, letting machines make decisions on their own isn't the right approach. But there's a middle ground, and that's one we should continue to explore a place where we work alongside each other. Let artificial intelligence do what it does best sort and process big chunks of data, identifying patterns along the way, while letting humans do what we do best building relationships and thinking creatively. Thanks for listening to AI Meets World. Be sure to tune in next week when we dive into another big issue, artificial intelligence and healthcare. AI Meets World is brought to you in partnership with Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. I'm Avery Swartz. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Stephanie Chan and Kieran Rana. Our musical composer and sound designer is Olivia Pasquarelli. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. It'll go a long way towards helping other listeners find us. See you next time.